So this morning I wanted to start off by showing you all a picture of me from when I was in college, when I was a bright-eyed young man ready to take on the world. There it is. Now clearly this picture begs many questions. Where was this picture taken? Well, this picture was taken at the church where myself and a few friends led youth group. The activity for the evening involved making clothing out of old newspapers. I started reading one of the old newspapers and then all of a sudden youth were taking strips of newspaper and tying my hair up in things. After they did that, some makeup came out and before you knew it, I looked hideous. You might ask why my hair was so long. I was trying something out. You might ask what that thing is on my chin. I have no good answer. Now this was uh, mildly charming and you, you humored me, you laughed a little bit when it first came on and uh, then when, when getting some answers to the context, maybe that increased your enjoyment of this or maybe this is just going on for too long. We might also have questions that aren't about what is happening then, um, but are about different contexts, such as, why do I still have this picture? Isn't this what computer recycling bins are for? Well, I have it because it's on Facebook. And yes, that is perhaps what the untag feature is for, but I don't know, it's kind of endearing. Now, perhaps the best question why am I showing you this? Why am I voluntarily showing you this at the start of a sermon? And for that, I have no good answer other than to make you all laugh at me. Except to say this. We're here today to celebrate two young people who are going to make a public profession of faith this morning. Two young people who are going to confirm the promises made in their baptism and become full members of the church. We are here today to celebrate the work that these young people have put into exploring their faith, learning about their faith, and putting their faith into practice. These young people have worked with a mentor, been through classes with me on the Christian faith, have attended worship regularly, and have had to do service projects during their confirmation period. They have done the full range of our church's discipleship process and are here today to say that they want to take their place within this particular local church and within Christ's universal church. And I want to tell them, especially today, that this is not the end. Sorry. But a very important middle point in their discipleship. There is no end point to our faith. There is no commencement. You don't reach the last stage in Christianity and you're set from there on out. Cue the credits. I think there's a specific fear when it comes to faith that we might have an experience. We might have a question. We might have something happen to us where we will outpace our faith. That our faith is this round hole and if our lives aren't perfectly matching shape, we'll have to choose one or the other. And so you either keep your life in its perfectly matching shape, not risking any stretching or growing, or you let your life go where it may and drop your faith. What I want us to see is these two options that they're not the case. We ask questions of this ridiculous photograph to gain a better sense of it. And this morning, I want us to take a story from the Bible. 
and stretch and grow with the story. We are in Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now on the surface, this is a fairly self-contained story of repentance and redemption. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim that God would destroy the city in 40 days. The people in Nineveh believed that Jonah was telling the truth and fasted and repented. God saw their repentance and had mercy upon the city and decided not to destroy it. That's a fairly basic story of grace. In fact, your confirmands could tell you different ways that grace operated in the story. Right? Couldn't you? Don't worry, I won't make you. But if our confirmands wanted to, they could tell you that Jonah coming to the city is a form of prevenient grace in letting the people know that God exists. The Ninevites repent and do works meet for repentance. Then God declares them righteous, giving them justifying grace. Right? Give me a thumbs up. Any, there we go. All of this is normal stuff for God, and it's the stuff that's happened in each of our lives leading us to where we ha are in our relationship with God. And yet, some of you might have some questions about this. Some of you might have this nagging feeling like there's something else to Jonah than what we have discussed. Haven't I heard about him for something else? Wasn't there another part to this story? Yes, this fairly innocuous story of grace is contained within a larger narrative that has huge twists and surprising turns. Jonah was a prophet living in a small town near Nazareth when God calls him to go to Nineveh to declare that God was going to destroy Nineveh. I'll have more to say on Nineveh in a minute. Well, more like three and a half minutes, but it's okay. Jonah is scared to go. He doesn't want to go tell a whole city full of people that God's about to destroy them because their likely reaction to that would have been to destroy him. So he goes to Joppa, which is present-day Tel Aviv, and catches a boat heading to Tarshish. 
Now, scholars disagree as to where Tarshish was, but a lot say somewhere near Spain, and they all agree that it was A, far away, and B, in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. While out at sea, a huge storm rolls in out of nowhere, and the sailors come to believe that God is angry at them for some reason. Jonah comes forward and says, I'm the reason that God is angry. So the sailors do the reasonable thing and throw him overboard. And the storm stops. Jonah is eaten by a big fish and is in the belly of the fish for three days. And yes, if that makes you think about Jesus, it should. And Jonah prays to God, repents of running from God, and promises to be faithful to God. The fish spits Jonah out. Jonah goes to Nineveh. And the rest you know. All of a sudden, this story is something a whole lot greater, a whole lot deeper. All of a sudden, we know a whole lot more about Jonah. We know why he would be willing to go to a foreign city and walk across for three days saying, God is going to kill all of you. We know more about Jonah's journey to get there. We know that Jonah isn't perfect. In fact, in running away from God, he's a whole lot more like us. And we know that God can be patient. God was patient with Jonah, and we see that God is patient again with the people of Nineveh. Our stories are equally as filled out. Our stories are equally as three-dimensional. One of the things we did in confirmation was to bring in a few members of Spirit and Life to tell their stories of faith. So hopefully the confirmants could see that the people with whom they share worship the people sitting around them today and every Sunday are people that have full stories. People that have stories where they ran from God and stories where they followed God. But we can keep asking questions about this story. For instance, how about we talk about Nineveh? What was Nineveh? Why is the direction of this story always towards Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire emerges in the 9th and 8th centuries before Christ. And as their empire expands, they become a bigger and bigger threat to the kingdom of Israel. Now, by the 9th century BC, the kingdom of Israel had split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Jonah comes out of the northern kingdom, and it's the northern kingdom that is threatened most by the expansion of the, Syri the Assyrian Empire. So let's ask some other questions while we're at it. When was Jonah sent on this mission? While admitting we don't know for sure, our best estimate says somewhere in the mid-8th century. Great, Pastor Matt. Next question, why is that important? Well, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom is conquered by, you guessed it, the Assyrians. In about 760 BC, Jonah is called by God to the capital of Assyria, Assyria, am I saying that correctly? Capital of Assyria, to tell the citizens of the capital of Assyria that God is going to destroy their capital in 40 days. And finally, we can piece together why all of this makes sense. In ancient times, wars weren't mainly about the things that we think wars are about. Most of the time, we think wars are about two competing armies, or we see some sort of grand chess match. 
It's a cross between the relative strength of each side versus the competing genius of the opposing officers and generals. Modern war seems mostly to be about technology and our ability to outspend and overwhelm our opponents. Now, all of this is categorically different to how the ancients thought about war. War for the ancients was a competition of the gods. It was my god versus your god. And the most powerful god won. That's why the smartest empires would assume the gods of defeated people into their own worship and mythology. The best empires incorporated a defeated people's most powerful gods into their worship to gain those gods' power for their side. All of this is to say that when Jonah is told that God is going to destroy the capital of the Assyrian Empire, he should jump for joy. Only he is told that he has to be the one to go tell the people living in the capital of the Assyrian Empire that Israel's God is coming for them which is essentially a declaration of war. And in ancient times, they really did shoot the messenger. So now we can get his fear. Now I have to tell you, there's a part of this story that I haven't told you yet. So Jonah finally goes to Nineveh and delivers God's message. And in some respects, their response is what all of us good church people can hope for. They repent. They change their ways. They cry out to God. And God forgives them. All of us might expect Jonah to be happy about this news. And we'd be wrong. Jonah is angry. Jonah is dejected. Jonah has a crisis of faith. Jonah doesn't understand how his God could do this. Jonah doesn't understand how the God of Israel could align, could spare, could pardon Israel's enemy. Jonah thought God was going to war with the gods of Assyria. And how could God be so weak to capitulate to Assyria's gods? So Jonah sulks. He broods. He goes and sits on a hill outside of the city. And he's mad. And he tells God he's mad. And he tells God that this is why he ran. He says, God, I know you're merciful and gracious, and that's why I ran. Ostensibly because he didn't want to feel like the fool he's become. And the original hearers of this story, the original readers of this story, the ancient Israelites would have felt exactly like Jonah. God, what do you mean you aren't going to take out the Assyrians? What do you mean you spared them? Are you not our God? Are we not your people? Why won't you fight for us? So Jonah is on this hill outside the city brooding. And God appoints a plant to come over him and shade him. Which is nice. And Jonah is a little happy because he has a plant to give him shade. Then the Bible says that the next day, God makes a worm eat the plant. This is really in your Bibles. I'm serious. And now Jonah has no shade. So Jonah is mad again. And says to God, why don't you just kill me already? God then says, Jonah, you're angry about this plant 
that you didn't plant or grow or tend? How do you think I feel about a city of 120,000 people who are lost and aimless? There are many questions we can ask about this confusing fourth chapter and final chapter of Jonah. This book is four chapters long, and it's incredibly rich and deep. You can read it this afternoon. It's really great. But perhaps the most pressing question we could ask is why was this story, this short four-chapter story, passed down for centuries, written down, and put into our Bibles? I mean, this is a story that flies in the face of how ancient peoples thought about their God. At the end of the story, we essentially have the God of Israel saying that the Ninevites, the Assyrians, are his people too. And here's the thing we have to keep in mind. It's one thing for the story of these events to permeate through Israel shortly after they happened. But within a generation of these events, the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And somehow, even after the Assyrians become the conquering and oppressing foreign power, this story of God professing his love and care for the Assyrians survives. Just to be clear, this never happened in the ancient world. The conquerors lorded their power over the conquered and proclaimed their God's triumph. And the conquered hated the conquerors and vowed that one day their God would have revenge. So how in the world does this story survive? And to answer that question, I want to talk about how this strange story applies to our lives and especially to the lives of our confirmants. As we read the Bible, as we contemplate our faith, as we live our lives, invariably we are going to have questions. The story of Jonah raises significant questions for us. Questions like, how could a fish swallow a person? And can I blame God for making worms eat my garden, and that's why I can't grow plants in my garden? I don't think I can do that with the second one. I think it's really my, my thumb and not the, the worms. But This story would have raised significant questions for ancient readers. Just as we struggle to believe that a fish could swallow a person, ancient readers would struggle to believe that the God of Israel cared for the Assyrians, that the God of Israel cared as much about Israel's enemies as he did for Israel herself. As you finish Confirmation... Your questions will not cease. As we live a life of faith, our questions do not cease. You will have significant questions about the nature of faith, the nature of our God, and the nature of our life on earth. But these questions shouldn't scare us. What we see from Jonah is that raising significant questions about the nature of God, asking who does God care about, and others can help us see the world, can help us see people, can help us see life more and more as God sees it. We learn to see that God is more than just a tribal deity, more than just a national deity. God cares about more than just one family or people or nation. We see that this God is patient. This God is merciful. This God is willing to pardon and have grace. We see that faith is dynamic, expanding and challenging. We see that the Bible is actually incredibly interesting, filled with wonderful, strange stories that speak to our deepest questions and longings. Congratulations to you two.
on all your hard work that you have done throughout this confirmation process. Congratulations to you two on all the searching and discerning, the learning and the questioning, the soul work that you have done to bring you today to openly and publicly profess your faith in Jesus Christ. But let me commend one thing to you, and that's that you never stop searching and discerning, never stop learning and questioning, never stop doing soul work. Because our faith, our God, are wells of infinite depth, and your journey of faith is plumbing as far into the infinite as you can. May you never stop searching. May you never stop questioning. And in your searching and questioning, may you come to know and more importantly come to love our wonderful, amazing, infinite, mysterious, gracious, caring, nurturing God. Let us pray.